Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this privilege and this honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for the truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for giving us this opportunity on an evening like this to fellowship together, to break bread. For your Son is the very bread of life. May we learn to dine and appreciate this very thing. Thank you also for revealing to us the work of your Son, for it is by grace through faith that we're saved and sanctified. Thank you for your promises and thank you for hope that sets us free. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your Son's work on the cross to make this evening a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel, Salvation, Sanctification, Part 79. Uh, I'm just going to share the front half of this evening's message. Um, is some somewhat of a sidebar, but um, I've had a few interesting conversations recently that prompted me to consider another way to present something subtle. There's a subtlety that's uh, been sort of stirring behind the scenes from the pulpit. Um, I may not formally teach you uh, the method of learning or you know, certain methods of reading your own Bible, even though that, um, uh, that encouragement has been on the table for a long time now to read your own Bibles. But there's a subtlety that comes with this that the Spirit's been teaching us for a while now, but I'm going to take this evening to uh, re-emphasize it in a different way, and you'll see what I have to say here in a moment. This topic began, again, with the greater emphasis on reading your own Bibles. Now, that was a revelation for some people, and that's not my words. Those are the words that I've been given over the past year or so. Once the emphasis came out, you mean I should read more of my own Bible? Yes, you should read more of your own Bible. Uh, and that may have been new to a lot of people, and so it was kind of a revelation for some. As a shepherd, um, I must communicate what the Spirit wants me to communicate, of course, knowing that you know some will accept that charge and go and read their Bibles while others may not, and frankly suffer the consequences which we might characterize as a lack of spiritual growth. Now, that being said, there's also the presence of a, and I've got this in quotes in my notes, a shepherd's fear. Whenever he encourages his sheep to go read their own Bibles, and of course, obviously, I mean, I know it's the right thing to do, and I'm just being sort of, just showing my soft underbelly a little bit here. Um, there's a certain kind of fear. You know, uh-oh, it's like when your 16-year-old kid learns how to drive and you see them leave the driveway for the first time, you know. It's like, oh, you know, it's the perfect right thing to do. But there's always a little bit of a fear uh, with that kind of license. But I do know it's the right thing to do. Obviously, I, hopefully you realize that I've encouraged it. But there's always that fear of the sheep possibly misinterpreting things on their own. Um, my great comfort, though, is in knowing that the Holy Spirit, assuming they keep on reading, will ultimately iron things out in their souls. And that, frankly, gives me great comfort that our true mentor and teacher um, 
will, if this person sticks with it, will iron things out eventually. You know, just like he's done in my own soul. And I trust him uh, implicitly to do that thing. I don't always trust man to keep on doing what they should be doing, but I trust that if they do, God the Holy Spirit will work it out. All the kinks and the confusion or whatever uh, a person might have to deal with, uh, even when they're reading their own Bibles. So in the interim, I must wait until things get ironed out, frankly, or even watch as people come to their own conclusions about things that are possibly incorrect even. In all fairness, I understand that, you know, I understand, obviously, I go through the same iterations and adjustments to my own convictions. So it's all good in the end. So I'm not upset by it. I'm just sharing a little bit of my own fears. I'm more upset, hopefully you understand this, I'm more upset when people refuse to do as they are instructed and read their Bibles. I'd much rather have someone read their Bible faithfully and, you know, go a little bit to and fro, but just keep with it, than someone who says, I'm not going to read my Bible at all. That second situation really, frankly, ticks me off um, because it's flat-out disobedience. I mean, if the guy with the spiritual gift, the one that you're ordained to study under, um, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. That guy uh, says you should read your Bible, and you say, I'm not going to read my Bible. Well, then that's flat-out disobedience. And that's a problem. That's a different problem altogether, though, than the person who might, again, read their own Bible, become a little confused for a little time, then iron things out in the end. But as I intimated, even though it's, you know, all good, it's not always what I would characterize as a, quote, pleasant experience. Watching others wandering somewhere between truth and error. Now, with all of that said, the best I can do, in addition to encouraging all of you to keep on reading your own Bibles, is to give you some guidance. That's the best I can do, is give you guidance. When you're reading, what... What's another strategy you might use? What's a strategy that an ordained pastor uses day in and day out in his own studies? What are some of the things that might help you out when you're sort of on your own and might keep you out of hot water? So here's some, uh, for example, and just concentrate, uh, please. This is important. Concentrate. Theology versus application. Theology versus application. Theology lays out principles. That's what theology is. We call them the the constitution of theology doctrines, whatever. Frameworks, however you'd like to think of it. But theology lays out principles. Life is where those principles are applied. The Bible gives us insight into both. The common error is to make theology out of human experiences recorded in Scripture even, like Job's wife. I always use Job's wife. Why? Because she's got one line attributed to her, and it's nasty. Curse God and die. (laughs) To the blameless and upright one that God prophesied no one like him on the planet. And the wife, 
can be mischaracterized because she has one line and it's nasty. And so we can't make a doctrine, in other words. We can't say, you know, all women are like that secretly. You know, we can't say that. We can't make doctrines out of Job's wife. We might apply that situation to a theology that Job's wife had a sin nature and she was failing. That's part of dogmatic theology, isn't it? We continue to fail even after we're saved. That's part of theology, but we can't reverse it. Or the Corinthian failure, you know, the Corin- I call them the knuckleheads. They failed all the time. All the time. But we can't take their experiences and turn them around and make doctrines out of them. It doesn't work that way. So, in other words, theology covers everything because it represents God's heart, which is infinite. However, the human experience with it is very limited. Theology covers everything because it represents God's heart. However, human experience is very limited. Sometimes the Bible makes a dogmatic statement which can be taken as theology proper. They are there, trust me. They are there. So if you're going to accept theology from the Bible, which you should, you should learn how to recognize theology when you see it and not take examples and make theology out of examples. Go to 1 John 3, 6. 1 John 3, 6. I want to show you uh, a case where there's theology on the table. Written by the Apostle John, without any real apology or any kind of, you know, there's not even an example in view other than the generic, which is typically the way proper theology is stated. 1 John 3.6 And I would encourage you to read the whole of 1 John 3 uh, for context, but we're, for the sake of time this evening, I'm just making a statement. The class is not about the contents of 1 John 3.6. It's about learning how to read your own Bibles and staying out of hot water. Recognizing theology versus application and not mixing the two. 1 John 3.6 says, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. That's theology. That's a dogmatic statement of fact from an apostle. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. John then is making a theological statement here, a dogmatic point of doctrine. He does a lot of that in 1 John, by the way. John is making a theological statement here, a dogmatic point of doctrine. Um, And I borrowed from three other individuals, um, C.I. Schofield, uh, for starters, on 1 John 3, 4-6, as a passage there. John is stressing the fact that a Christian cannot keep on practicing sin because he is born of God. That's the theology. That's how Schofield puts it. J. Vernon McGee puts it as, If you can be happy in sin, my friend, then you are not God's child, because God's children have the nature of their father. And then John MacArthur reads, If no check against habitual sin exists in someone who professes to be a Christian, 
John's pronouncement is absolutely clear. Salvation never took place. So that's just theology. That's just another way of stating what 1 John 3, 6 states. This is other individuals besides myself. But the point is that this is doctrine. This is theology. This is a dogmatic statement. Uh, There's not even a person in view. It's a statement of theology. So the context of 1 John, think of 1 John as a whole, the whole book, conveys that abiding, John likes that word abiding because he refers to believers with it. In other words, if you are a believer, then you abide. As I've taught you in the past, sins here is in the present tense active voice, which refers to habit or lifestyle, which puts a little wrinkle on it because a legalistic person would read 1 John 3.6 and say, man, you have to live a life of sinless perfection or else you must not be saved. And we know that's not true. We know that's not true. We look at the original language even. It's in the present tense active voice as I've taught you in the Greek, means that it's a habit or a lifestyle. The one who abides does not make a lifestyle of sin. For clarity, John also speaks to the alternative lifestyle of the unbeliever who he describes as not seeing or knowing God. That can't apply to a believer, obviously, because we see and know God and He loves us and we know Him intimately because He indwells us. So these are strong statements, hence we use the theological term dogmatic. And again, the lesson this evening is not about 1 John 3.6. It's about discovering the difference between theology and understanding what theology looks like in Scripture and then the difference between that and application. And there's a lot of application principles. Just read 1st or 2nd Corinthians. It's all over 1st or 2nd Corinthians. How did they screw up? Well, here's the theology. How did they screw up? Well, let us count the ways. Well, how did you screw up today? Well, let us count the ways. So the theology remains rock solid. The theology is like the whole thing. And then human experience is like little touch points against theology. But you can't turn these things around and make case statements so that that becomes your theology. So these are strong statements. We call them dogmatic. So to walk you through this example, the theology is simple. Oh, oh did I not give you that? Did I give you this yet? I did, right? I go backwards. The theology is simple. 1 John 3, 6. Believers abide. No believer's lifestyle is characterized by sin. Anyone who does live that way is not a believer. That's what 1 John 3, 6 says, and that's theology. Now, some people choke on that. They say, well, that seems kind of over the top. But that's the way theology is stated. It's dogmatic. Believers abide. No believer's lifestyle is characterized by sin. Anyone who does live that way is not a believer. So then you have to say, well, what does it mean to have a lifestyle, first of all, that's characterized by sin? Well, then that seems to be the sort of open-endedness in the Bible. But the theology is there. The theology is on paper. The theology is accurate. The the theology is never going to change. It's always been that way. That's God's heart. So one has to ask themselves, even, why would anyone have a problem with John's theology here? 
Even if you're one of those people, they're like, oh, that seems kind of harsh. Why would you have a problem with John's theology? That's a good question to ask. On that note, some have hacked this up a bit and hijacked the meaning of abiding, trying it or tying it to some kind of spiritual maturity or filling of the spirit issue. But that is an error in context and in many cases a remnant of another issue altogether that I like to call light switch theology, where the spiritual life is supposedly governed by protocols. And I'm sort of skirting an issue here because some of you understand what I'm saying and some don't. But abiding, if you read the whole of 1 John, abiding as far as God or John is concerned and his usage means a believer. So the point is that if someone is off reading their Bible on their own as instructed, then they must understand what I call verbal, or what's better known as verbal plenary scripture. That means the whole thing. If you're going to read the Bible... Sometimes you have to not, look, sometimes you have to not go like this. The appointed, oh, let me look up appointed. Feast, oh, let me look up feast. Has, let me look up, no. Sometimes you have to read. Read for context. Big, you'll never get context or big picture. By the time you get to the third word, you've forgotten the big picture. You've forgotten where you are. You've forgotten the context because you're too preoccupied with the weeds. And that's what gets people in a lot of trouble, especially lay people. Especially people that are trying to learn and read their Bibles on their own. But they're spending way too much time in the weeds. So they must understand verbal plenary scripture, a.k.a. otherwise known as the context of the passage or verse that they are reading. This error is what give, or has given many people fits about 1 John 1, especially. 1 John 1, once you have the full context with Gnosticism, Docetism, as I taught you, it's not hard at all. It's not hard at all. You stop making all these ridiculous errors with light switch theology, especially 1 John 1, 9. That, all that big debacle goes away once you understand the context of 1 John as a whole even. Again, 1 John 3, 6 reads, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. So let me give you a quote from William MacDonald that I read on this this morning that I really love because it highlights what the Spirit's saying about theology. This is important, so please keep concentrating. It's a wonderful example, 1 John 3, 6. The question naturally arises then, when does sin become habitual? Okay, if the theology says a believer will not habitually sin, well, when, what's habitual sin then? What does that mean? How often does a person have to commit it for it to become characteristic behavior? John does not answer this. The theology remains. But God, John does not answer that question. Rather, he puts each believer on guard and leaves the burden of proof on the Christian himself. Love it. Couldn't have said it better myself. 
That's often the way theology is, my friends. That's why you have a little something called the human spirit who gets to talk to and understand God the Holy Spirit every single day with a thing we call the good conscience. I've taught you ad nauseum about the good conscience. Why do you think he gives you all these faculties? So that you can be left up to your own devices, so to speak. So you can figure out, what is habitual sin? Do I not love Jesus or not? Do I love him or not? Do I have a problem with this? Am I an unloving jackass? Or do I actually have a little bit of love in me? I don't know. Don't ask me. I know what the theology says. The theology says if your lifestyle is characterized by sin, you're not a believer. That's between you and the Lord, though. John doesn't take it any further than that. And I'm glad he doesn't, because people would be hyper-focused on that. Well, is that me? Is that me? Oh, my God. This is the difference between theology. You have to be able to say, I accept that theology. And if the apostles said, I'm leaving it up to you to decide, because I trust in the Spirit, in your life, if you have him. Read the end of 1 John 3 and the beginning of 1 John 4. He talks about how the Spirit will convict the person. Yes, you are a child of God. It says it in Scripture. The Spirit will do that for you. Which is good fruit, by the way. But how much? I don't know. I know I'm saved. And I know I sin like a banshee sometimes. What do you want me to say? I still live in certain sins, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> right? So if I was an idiot, I don't, let, me, let, me, all right, let, me, let me say it that way, I'm sorry. If I was ignorant about, you know, if I just opened my Bible and there was 1 John 3, 6 and I read it, it's the first thing I've ever read in the Bible, and I said, oh my word, what the heck? Maybe I'm not saved. Well, I'd be wrong. That's all I'm saying. Understand that sometimes theology, you have to take the whole of it. If, th- if theology leaves an open end, like John doesn't tell you what it means to be a habitual sinner. What level is... But other scripture helps us out. Other scripture says God the Holy Spirit will tell you if you're a child of God. Oh, you can lie about it. You can be a faker until you make it, right, type person. But that's between them and the Lord too. But let's not douse theology. Let's not water it down to suit our taste buds. If it seems harsh to you, too bad. John didn't lie. He wasn't interested in lying. This is the theology. If you're a believer, you don't have a lifestyle of sin. If you have a lifestyle of sin, if your life is characterized by sin, then you're not a believer. I didn't say that. That's what the Word of God says. What would you like me to say? That's theology proper. So McDonald is correct, and this little experiment with 1 John 3.6 is a perfect illustration of the subtleties of reading your own Bibles. So listen carefully right now. A little more on Theology 101. When it comes to theology, you must accept the openness of it at face value. If something is stated clearly then you must accept it on faith, regardless of whether it is something you can personally relate to. That's Theology 101. When it comes to theology, you must accept the openness of it at face value. If something is stated clearly, 
then you must accept it on faith, regardless of whether it is something you can personally relate to. The tendency of man in his flesh is to immediately begin trying to narrow theology so that it's more easily controlled, let's say. That's what man loves to do. Well, I don't like that statement by John. So let me just hack at it a little bit and make it fit what I want it to fit. Because these are my experiences or these are the experiences I see elsewhere, whatever. Man loves to put God in a box by citing human experiences, sometimes even those that are recorded in the Bible. For example, let me just give you a perfect example. Abraham, and the ladies will grin at this, Abraham asked Sarah to lie about being his sister. And he lived in that sin for a time. Right, ladies? Not once. Twice. Twice. Abraham. You know Abraham. There's not another one. Should we conclude that Abraham was an unbeliever based on John's words in 1 John 3? Of course not. Abraham's in the Hall of Fame of Faith. So we might say that just because a person happens to be living in a certain sin doesn't mean that they are unbelievers. That's a perversion of truth. Let me give you a few examples to think about that I believe will help you as you continue to read your Bibles for context. All capitals. Context. Context is key. So I'm going to pretend, I'm going to use the word theology, and hopefully the context will show you that it's not real theology. I'm giving you, I'm giving you an example. So here's analogy number one. Theology, you ready? Theology. Red ants bite. Theology, okay? Statement of fact. Red ants bite. Practicality or application. John lived for 70 years beside a red ant hill and was never bitten. Theology, red ants bite. John lived near a red ant hill for 70 years and was never bitten. Does that mean that the theology, red ants bite, should be thrown out? No. Analogy number two. Theology. Red ants build intricate tunnels for their homes. Theology. Red ants build intricate tunnels for their homes. Practical application. John has never seen these tunnels. Does that mean that John should conclude that these tunnels don't exist? No. Okay. Let's take this logic to Scripture now. On truth, real theology. God is omniscient. That means He knows everything. God is omniscient. Practical application. After 70 years of studying the Bible, John doesn't know everything that God does. Does that mean that whatever John doesn't know about God doesn't exist? No. On truth. Theology. Believers produce good fruit. Practicality. Application. After 70 years of living with his wife, 
John has never seen anything that would, he would characterize as good fruit. <laughs> Poor guy. Does that mean that John has the right to conclude that his wife is not saved? No. She may or she may not be. John's not God. On truth, theology, believers produce good fruit. Same as previous example. Practicality, application, after 70 years with her husband, Joni has seen what appears to be much good fruit. Does that mean that Joni has the right to conclude that her husband is saved? No. He may or may not be. Is the theology affected at all? No. No. Not at all. Regardless of Joni or John's experiences. The theology remains. Conclusion. Plural. In theology, man has every right to say that a person who is saved will bear good fruit. That's Scripture. In practice... Man never has the right to judge someone else's salvation status. Theology, man has every right to say that a person who is saved will bear good fruit. That's biblical. In practice, man never has the right to judge someone else's salvation status. That's practical. There are other dogmatically stated theological truths that add clarity to the aforementioned truth about believers bearing good fruit. For example... For example, Scripture teaches us that we are new creatures in Christ, that the Holy Spirit will convict our human spirits, that we are indwelled by the Trinity, that God is love, that it's by grace through faith that we are saved, and the list of theological statements goes on and on and on. Amen? Amen. So trust me when I say this, and I mean this, with every bit of force that I have as a shepherd, keeping it simpler, there's enough theology proper to occupy us for the rest of our lives. We do not need to add complexity by manufacturing doctrines as a result of observing the actions of others, even if we are reading about them in the Bible. Would John possibly have a tendency to say, hey, there's no way my wife is saved? Possibly, because he's never seen any good fruit out of her. Maybe she really is Job's wife on steroids. We don't know. But he doesn't have the right. Who knows what kind of scar tissue that woman might be dealing with, what kind of a jerk Job might have been. Or John, geez, I'm mixing my stories now, that John could have been for those 70 years and maybe she's just miserable because John's a jackass and she don't want to give him anything. Well, that's a problem, but doesn't mean she's not saved. Doesn't mean maybe deep down inside she wants to be a better wife or what have you. But that's not our business. And that has nothing to do with theology. That's my point. Do you understand? That's not, that doesn't affect theology. As long as practicality stays within the confines of theology proper, anything goes, as far as I'm concerned. 
But you've got to learn what theology looks like in Scripture. And you've got to learn to accept it, even if it's a little bit hard to swallow at first. You have to learn to accept it. And never, ever take experiences, even if they're in the Bible, turn them around and narrow theology proper. I believe where most confusion on this topic arises is when people mix theology with practicality and vice versa. So let's review, review, uh, review this before we carry on with our mainstream curriculum. Again, theology versus application. Theology lays out principles. Life is where those principles are applied. The Bible gives us insight into both. The common error is to make theology out of human experience recorded in Scripture, for example, Job's wife, the Corinthians' failures, etc. Theology 101 states, when it comes to theology, you must accept the openness of it at face value. If something is stated clearly, then you must accept it on faith, regardless of whether it is something you can personally relate to. Conclusions. In theology, man has every right to say that a person who is saved will bear good fruit. In practice, though, man never has the right to judge someone else's salvation status. Keeping it simpler, there's enough theology proper. This is just between me and you. There's, honestly, I'm at this all day, right? Pretty much most days. And I'm exhausted thinking about theology. In other words, there's enough there's enough theology proper without us meddling any further, making things more complicated than they need to be. And that's what people do. I lo- you know, you see this all the time. It's like there's a general rule, let's say, and everybody, what does the first antagonistic ass do? They go to the polar end. They try to, I, I forget how I, I, I say it, but it's like um, they try to discount the general rule by the extreme Example, oh, well, you can't, you can't have, I'm not saying I'm for or against the death penalty, but you can't have the death penalty because this guy over here was proven innocent after, after he was put to death. Well, what about the 600 people before that were actually, or the thousands of people that were protected by putting 500 other people to death? And I'm not arguing for or against the death penalty. I don't want to get into politics up here or any of that. But hopefully you get the point. People like to use corner cases to discount the general rule. They try to use some experience to blow up the actual doctrine that's set in stone. And that's a terrible way to approach Scripture. So there's enough theology proper to occupy us for the rest of our lives. We do not need to add complexity by manufacturing doctrines as a result of observing the actions of others, even if we are reading about them in the Bible. Just remember, you don't know know anything, really. I mean, how much do you really know about Jesus before he was 30? How much? How much do you know about him? How much do you know about Paul before he's first mentioned as, say, Saul? How much do you know about the apostles? How much do you know about, I don't know, Timothy? Bartholomew? How much do you know about these guys? You know nothing. You know nothing about these individuals. 
So the accounts that are recorded in the Bible are really just touch points. Touch points to help illuminate a certain part of theology proper. But that's not theology, folks. That's life that comes into contact with theology. Those human beings who come into contact with God's heart, God's law, God's word. That's very different. Those are two different things. My main objective for all of you is that you understand theology. I want to impart principles to you. So please always keep these things in mind whenever you're reading your Bibles on your own. And do yourselves a favor. Fight the urge to narrow God's theology whenever you're reading about a character's experience in the Bible. And frankly, folks, and I'm not ashamed to say this, that's some very sound wisdom coming from a man who's had a lot of experience in this area. That's me. And as the Bible teaches, I'm here for a reason, which, by the way, is yet another dogmatic statement of theology in the Bible. Go to Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11. Here's another dogmatic statement of theology. This isn't, oh, this, you know, so-and-so was an evangelist, or so-and-so decided to be a pastor, or so-and-so was this, so I guess the theology says somebody can just decide to be this. No. This is theology. Ephesians 4.11, And he gave, he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for a purpose for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Folks, that's theology. That's, you don't get to morph theology. That's theology. These gifts exist for a reason. That's theology. And you don't get to pick and choose and say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't, whatever. I'm so brilliant, I don't need these gifts in my life. Well, that's you being against theology. I mean, that's what theology states. that He gave these spiritual gifts for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. That's theology. It's not an example even. That's theology. Look at verse 13. Why? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is theology, my friends. That's not some example. That's not, you know, oh, well, when Paul was a pastor or a shepherd, this is what happened with him. No, this is theology. This is a general principle. And you have to accept that at face value. You have to say, God gave these spiritual gifts for a reason, to build me up. I'm part of the body. I want to be a servant. I guess I should pay attention to theology. But so-and-so's a jackass. And, and, and he's crooked and he's out for sordid gain. Then don't listen to him. Not all pastors are like that. But I've been burned. So what? Get over yourself. Get beyond yourself. God's not a liar. The theology still remains. I've actually had people come up to me, not because of me, 
literally rant on me, hate on me because I'm a pastor and say, I'll never follow another pastor again. I'm good with my own Bible. You guys all stink. I'm like, what? I'm like, even if, even if I was the biggest jackass, right? But I had my theology right. What is that person saying about theology of Ephesians 4, 11 through 13? That they get to, because of their human experience, get to throw out what God says is true? This is, that's what man does. In other words, if you're rejecting my good counsel on this, then you are rejecting the word of God, not me. I know this. First Thessalonians 4, 8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I can't, what do you want me to do? If you're, if you're in the boat where you're going to reject the authority that's been given to you to equip you, well, that's between you and the Lord. But I can tell you what Scripture says. And you can't do, you know, the MC Hammer out of it. And the wiggle, nobody? Nobody ever did that? Salt and pepper? That's a rough. Lois is like, yeah. Salt and pepper's here. Right, Lois? Yeah. All right. With all that said, that, that's three quarters of our time, but he must have obviously had a lot to say on that. Listen, folks, I love you. I just want you to read your Bibles, and I want you to read it so you stay on the right path. That's all I care about. I just want you to get the theology. I want you to get the theology right, right? We may even disagree about practical issues. Well, that's this and that's that. whatever. I care that you get the theology right because I trust that God the Holy Spirit who indwells you will bring into remembrance the right things at the right time, will convict you just the right way at the right time. That I know. So my job is to lead you to theology. I will use examples. I will continue to use examples, just like the Bible does, to illuminate certain key points, to see certain aspects of theology in action. Those are very encouraging things to see. But I never want you to take those times and flip it and make theologies out of someone's experience, even if they're in the Bible. So just while you're reading, learn to look for theology. All right, let's get back. I've got 15 minutes. I'm not, gonna, I'm not sure how much I'm going to get. I'll probably just get through some of the review of this past week. On changing gears severely here, but not losing sight of what we just learned. On Tuesday, we were given some additional things to think about. For example, Colossians 1.10. We went to that verse, uh, Colossians 1, about four times, I think. Scott made fun of me. I know what Pastor said, we're done, but obviously the Spirit had different. I'm like, oh, I see how it is, game on. Let's see, Scotty. Give the guy a little power, next thing you know. I feel a little shorter tonight, right? Cut me out at the knees. I'm like, you just cut a few pegs off. I'm like, what? It's on, brother. It's not like that at all. But I did say it to myself. I'm like, oh, I see how it is. Walking. Colossians 1.10. God has empowered us to do His commands. 
He's qualified us even. We looked at that word. That's walking. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, when you know commands, simply put, are just God's will for you. When you do his commands, you're following his will. Right? And when you follow his will, that's walking. Of course, the Spirit's right with you, so we can say walking by the Spirit. Walking in the Word of Christ. However, walking shows up in the Bible. But God has empowered us to do these things. That's walking. It's by grace through faith that we do so. And you might say to yourself, but how does this happen? And this is part of what I taught earlier. Well, how does this happen? Hey, listen. Don't ask me. Theology says that it will happen because God will make it so. Do you understand? Listen, how the heck would I know how he's going to make Melissa over here? Dysfunctional Melissa. (laughs) She's like, my eyes hurt. See, you don't... No, seriously, how do I know he's going to make any one of you do his will? I don't know, but I know that theology says that you will. If you're a believer, you will have good fruit somewhere in you. You will do His will. That's what theology says. So let's stop arguing about things that aren't actually included in the theological framework. Theology says that it will happen and that God will make it so. We don't always know how. Listen, we don't always know how God's going to do something. But faith says that He does what He says he will. Amen? We don't know how. How the heck? Come on, people. If you're 20 years old, yeah, everybody here is 20 years old. If you're 20 years old, if you've, been, if you've been saved for 20 years, or even 20 years ago, before you were saved maybe even, did you have any idea that you'd be in this situation right now, that you'd be thinking the way you're thinking, that your life, that your heart would be changed the way it is? How in the world did he do that despite you? He did, though, didn't he? He did. And you know why he did it? Because you're saved. That's all theology talks about, my friends. There's no... Anybody in here want to raise their hand and say they're worse off now than they were 20, 30 years ago in terms of the walk, the spiritual walk? I'm not saying having ups and downs. I'm talking about seeing it all as truth. Seeing it all much better. Being more free. Even if you're in more physical bondage. That's what I'm talking about. Anybody want to say that? And you know why nobody can possibly say that? Is because theology in the Bible is actually true. He says, I will complete it. Despite you. Amen? I'll do it. And you have to look back and go, you know what? Hot dog! He did it! He did it! I can't believe it. I'm an ass. Right? Not me, you. I'm awesome. I've always been awesome. It was like so little sanctification that I even had to be done with me. It was ridiculous. I'm like, God, what are you going to do? You're going to take me from here to here? <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm here. You have to think about that. That's how God sees things. And when you think like that and you look back on Scripture, you say, you mean the theology is true? Yeah, it's true. It's true. 
That's how theology works, my friends. The specifics, stop arguing about them. It's not worth it. I mean, even Scripture says that. Stop arguing about genealogies ad nauseum. It's just going to make people crazy, and it's gonna, Satan's going to use it to divide. So we don't always know how God's going to do something, but faith says that He does what He says He will. Again, on the flip side, if that never happens, what does the Bible say? You're not saved. What am I say? That's theology. As a side note, then, <clears throat> supernatural walking, thank God we can't figure him out. This came up on Tuesday. So many things he does that we have no idea how he's going to pull that off. But in hindsight, like we all agreed, he does. So thank God we can't, quote, figure him out. For if we could, what would happen? And all I could think about when I heard this from the lesson was Judges 7-2. Remind me of Gideon. You know, the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. In other words, <laughs> if you could figure out God, you'd say, Well, then I am God. And I don't need God. And anything that I happen to be sanctified, what was my doing? Because I'm just like God. Sounds like Satan. So God says, I'm not going to give you everything. Are you crazy? I'm not going to tell you everything. You guys are arrogant enough. So thank God. He says, I'll give you faith so that you can trust me. How about that? I won't tell you. I'll give you faith instead. And then you can trust me. How about that? And that will bring glory to me. On a more practical level, we've realized that one of the things that sanctified believers do is live a life of gratitude. This has been coming up in a lot, an awful lot. Just look, folks, just being grateful. I mean, who wasn't grateful the day they were born again and saved? I mean, who wasn't grateful? And if you weren't, you have to question yourself. You have to question what went on just then. Which brings up another question. Relative to supernatural walking, do you have to, quote, try to, quote, be grateful? In other words, you know, like the old thing, all right, little tyke, go tell Aunt Sue thank you. The kid's like, do I have to? Go tell Aunt Sue thank you. But this gift's terrible. I don't want pink undershorts, right? I'm a boy. Go tell Aunt Sue Thank you. How much real gratitude is there? Can you force the little kid to be thankful? No, he might do a protocol. That sounds religious. He might do a protocol, but you're not going to be able to change the kid's heart. <laughs> but a believer's heart is changed, and it's full of gratitude. It may be tucked away. It may be muddied. It may be confused. It may be a lot of things. But there is a certain sense of gratitude for the cross. So you have to ask yourself, as that continues to play out in life, do you have to try to be grateful? No. You can be reminded of things to be grateful for, but here's the deal. God is the one who gives us the ability to be grateful, and that's true grace. If you try to be something you're not, you're a hypocrite. So... <laughs> I guess the solution then, if you're, if you're 
a bit ungrateful right now, maybe one of the problems is you're trying to be. Maybe one of the problems is that you don't know how yet fully or your arrogance is getting in the way of what it means to receive grace. Because trust me, if you learn how to receive grace, you'll be grateful. Anybody want to argue with that? No. Of course. If you try to be something you're not, you're a hypocrite. Go to Romans 12.9. Scripture says this about that topic. Romans 12.9. If you try to be something you're not, you're a hypocrite. The greatest thing we can be in the spiritual life is lovers. Romans 12.9. So, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Like Scott mentioned on Tuesday, saying, you know, I love you may sound good, but if the heart's not in it, then it's no good. Those are just words. Anybody can say, I can get Willie the Parrot to say, I love you. Fair, I think I've seen a dog on Funniest Videos say, I love you, right? And it sounded just like I love you. I'm just saying. The words mean nothing. The words mean nothing. It's the same thing with sexual activity. They mean nothing unless the context is godly, if it's right, if it's true. So you can say, I love you, and it may sound good, but if the heart's not in it, then it's no good. Again, the point on the board, do you have to try to be grateful? No. You can be reminded of things to be grateful for, But God is the one who gives us the ability to be grateful. That's true grace. If you try to be something you're not, you're a hypocrite. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let's just finish this, and then I've got to close here in a couple minutes. Romans 12.10 Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Theology says if you don't do that thing with the right heart, all that's garbage, it becomes religion. So you see, these are like application principles. I'm not saying they don't amplify the base theology, but these are application principles. These are the things that you'll see from a person who's not a hypocritical lover of God himself. So don't mix again. So this helps us a little bit more with the practical side of things. Uh, And here's, uh, yeah, I've got time. Here's another wonderful point from Tuesday's lesson on supernatural walking. If it's a struggle to walk or you're frustrated, something's wrong. You're likely rejecting grace in arrogance. Again, if if supernatural walking to you seems to be a struggle or you're frustrated, then something's wrong. You're likely rejecting grace in your arrogance. Somehow, someway, you're rejecting grace. I think I've shared this with you in the past. There was a time in my life, and I was saved. I, I think I would, well, I don't know if I was ordained yet, but I was well on my way to being ordained. And there were certain things I wouldn't go to God with. I'm not kidding you. 
I'm like, I'm not going to pray to God on that. That's so trivial. And then another pastor corrected me. He said, Sir, we're out golfing, right? And of course, he turns the whole thing sour. I think he was jealous because I was kicking his butt. And he's like, oh, you've got to get all theological on me and make me feel bad, right? But he did correct me. He goes, what do you mean? Why wouldn't you ask God for help in this thing? And I was like, rawr, rawr. Then like, later, I'm like, he's right. Why in the world would I not go to God for everything? Why am I not conversing with God about everything? If I say, God, hey, let me have a hole-in-one here, because it'll make me really happy. He's probably not going to do it. I'm just saying. But maybe he would. And if it happened, I'd thank him. And if he doesn't, I have to say by faith that he didn't want me to be all puffed up. But why wouldn't I talk to him about everything? He already knows my heart. Why not just talk to him about everything? Because I'm arrogant. I was arrogant, at least on that topic. I'm still arrogant in many ways, but... Do you know what I'm saying? It just means you're rejecting grace. If he says, I'm with you always, like Jesus said in the Great Commission, lo, I'll be with you always, then guess what? He's with you always. He wants nothing more than to you for, to have your attention 24-7. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, you're not antagonistic. Commandments, if you like to think about it, is the will of God. As you stand next to the will of God, you don't have any friction. You're not like that teenager that has a friction with the parents because you want to be independent from your parents because you're arrogant towards your parents. That whole thing goes... And anything your parents say, God in heaven, not a burden. Just tell me what I need to do. Cool beans. That's love. You're so attached to God that anything He asks of you, anything the Holy Spirit convicts you of, who is God, by the way, anything the Word imparted to you, um, invokes, I guess, or, or has you doing, maybe something new, isn't a problem. Once learned, that's the love of God. It's by grace through faith that we are saved and sanctified. So much of this is an act of free will. It's why even though the overarching theology states dogmatically that God will sanctify all of His children, some children grow up quicker than others in faith. Some just grow up quicker than others. Why? One word. What do you, DJ, what's the one word? Humility. There you go. Humility. <laughs> Humility. Why do some people seem to accelerate quicker than others? That's it. It's humility. There's nothing else you can do. God gives grace to the humble. If something like even gratitude, being grateful for being here this evening is a gift from God, is divine good fruit. How'd you get it? You were humble. Amen? All right, we're out of time. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.
Thank you.